Hey, introduced listeners. We'd love to learn more about you, so we're asking you to fill out our listener survey in the description below. It will take you only about five minutes, and it will help shape the future of what Wisconsin Sea Grant makes. So click pause, fill out the survey, then enjoy the show. I'm Sydney. I'm Bonnie. And this is Introduced from Wisconsin Sea Grant. Sarah Dance thinks about wild rice a lot. It's on my mind all the time. I, I like think about wild rice, like from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to bed. I have no idea why, but I, I know other researchers that have a similar phenomenon that happens because it's so pervasive in so many parts of your life because it's so tied to culture and society and politics. That was Dance. I talked to her through Zoom in June and it was great. Her rabbit was hopping around in the background for a little bit. My name is Sarah Dance. I go by Dance. Um, I'm from the Lumbee tribe of North Carolina. Uh, I came to Wisconsin at the beginning of 2018. She actually started researching wild rice through a project with Wisconsin Sea Grant. And that's where I became familiar with her work. Dance is part of the Environmental Chemistry and Technology program at UW-Madison. She's interested in how chemicals introduced by mining impact wild rice and its ability to take in the nutrients that it needs to grow. Wild rice is really important to the indigenous people of the Great Lakes region. It's important as not only a food source, but also as a spirit, as a way of life. In Ojibwe Moan, the language of the Ojibwe people, wild rice is called manumen. Sarah Dance has gotten to know a lot about how wild rice grows on the lakes and rivers across the Great Lakes region. So in the earlier season, um, it just looks like a typical wetland. Wild rice habitat might look like a typical wetland. The seed germinates and it goes through a submerged leaf stage, and then the leaf comes up to the surface. As we go throughout the season, then there is the floating leaf stage where it's these long tendrils um, of the wild rice that's actually like, it's trying to get the most sun for to photosynthesize uh, as possible. So once it hits that water surface, it creates this long leaf. So it almost looks like this hair that's across the surface of the water. At this time, the plant is really sensitive to uprooting. So you wanna be careful if you go out on the water or don't go out at all. And then after that point, as they emerge into the air, it's these tall, dense stands um, that kind of, they line the outside of waterways. So as you're navigating through, you know, you've got your canoe and if it's a stream, you know, you're navigating through this clear pathway and then you've got wild rice to your right and left. In the fall, many Ojibwe communities go out to harvest wild rice in canoes. Some of that rice then falls back into the water and is reseeded and the cycle continues. Dance initially knew she wanted to research environmental issues that affect tribal nations. She thinks a lot about, one, the science of rice, but also, two, how to do research for the benefit of her tribal partners. There's actually a long and fraught history of u university researchers harming tribal nations. Dance told me about one example in Minnesota. From my understanding, um, in the some of the research that I've done, it was the University of Minnesota a few decades ago, went to one of the 
nation's reservations in Minnesota. And they asked to have some of the seed from a seed bank there. And they took it and they selectively bred it. It's not genetically modified, but they selectively bred it to be to become this patty wild rice that is what people typically eat now. Um, and so when they did that, they gave no credit, no uh, any kind of financial divestment to the, the tribes or the nations or anything like that. So that took off. I mean, that market has totally destroyed the natural wild rice market. So, you know, that's what people mostly eat. That's what people actually associate mostly with wild rice instead of, you know, the natural monomen. For some tribal members who rely on rice for their income, this has been pretty devastating as an economic loss to them. So how does dance work through this complicated history? It's, a, it's just a lot of relationship building. It's a lot of understanding. Understanding and learning about their culture, their relationship with Monoman, understanding our university's history. I go out with people. I learn a lot more about it. I engage with them on the front of selecting sites, selecting research methods, and really just keeping this idea of relationship building and trust building. How does Stance study the rice? Yeah, so she grows wild rice in these five-gallon buckets, and so she's able to have control over them and simulate different conditions and see how the rice responds. So she drops the seed into the sediment in April or May, and then by September, the rice is tall, and it's anywhere from three to four feet tall above the water. It's not particularly easy to study rice this way, because it's really hard to get wild rice to germinate in buckets. The life stages might not be the same as in the natural environment, and you also need to have a certain number of plants next to each other for cross-pollination. Monoman is notoriously difficult to grow outside of its environment. Um, I'm currently frustrated with some of it, and I've been very frustrated in the past. And it's definitely gotten me down a lot, because yeah, I mean, any student when your research isn't working out, it's very distressing. Um, and then I, I had an, a, a meeting with someone who has a more personal relationship to Monoman. They're part of their tribal community. Um, and they kind of brought me back to this idea of, you know, it's not really, I, I, I'm looking at it from this point of view of something to get from it. When in reality, I'm trying to cultivate this relationship with Monoman in order to benefit both of us, because that's what relationships are. It's this mutual friendship, this mutual beneficial outcome. So I, I think that was really the most striking moment of changing my perspective when things weren't working out. If that's part of Monoman's life, that's just part of Monoman's life. We were really interested in learning how invasive and introduced species impact wild rice and the Native American communities in Wisconsin. But while we were reporting this story, we quickly learned that aquatic invasive species are not the only challenges facing wild rice. And to understand these challenges, we had to see connections between wild rice and everything around it. Melanie Montano is a Redcliffe tribal member, and she works for the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission. Melanie Montano, I grew up learning plants and medicines and things like that. And from what she was taught, everything is connected. 
you know, at the end of the day, something from the cultural lens is that um, everything is connected. And so if we're going to be looking at aquatic invasive species or, you know, the beings of the water, then we should be, you know, looking at what's surrounding them too, because we're in order to understand and perceive the world and try to help, we're eventually always making these boundaries and disconnects. This episode might be a little less focused on aquatic invasive species than our usual episodes. And it's important that we get back to um, a holistic perspective and look at things from both the micro and the macro lens and remember that all those are connected. And so it's not just about the aquatic uh, beings at the end of the day, if we want to be able to, you know, make a difference or be of help. In this story, we look at wild rice as part of the whole ecosystem. So back when we were talking to wild rice scientist Sarah Dance, she recommended that if we wanted to get to know more about wild rice, we should contact the Mole Lake Band of Sakagan Chippewa. And that's how we came to talk to Peter. My name is Peter Magishik or Anamiki Benesi, which is Thunderbird. I'm a member of the Scoggin Chippewa community in northeastern Wisconsin. We're a band of Lake Superior Chippewa Indians. And I am the rice chief. I was appointed rice chief last year. I actually inherited it. My father passed along to me. We caught Peter in his office on the Mole Lake Reservation in Crandon, which is in northern Wisconsin. He's been harvesting wild rice for 50 years. He harvests on Rice Lake, which is the only lake on the reservation left that still has wild rice. And Rice Lake has got a reputation for having some of the best rice in northern Wisconsin. What does he do as a rice chief? Yeah, Peter told me about that. First and foremost, I, I pray to the, to the uh, great spirit every day um, for the wild rice and or the spirit of wild rice. Wild rice is more than just an aquatic plant, it's a spirit. And um, I, I pray for that spirit and ask for that spirit to, to, for the creator to look over that spirit. And, and I look at our lake, my responsibility is to make sure that there's nothing that harms the wild rice, that people understand the importance of the wild rice I advocate for it on a daily basis. So some of Peter's tasks as a wild rice chief, he teaches people how to harvest rice, how to put out tobacco and pray to the great spirit for the rice. And the rice chiefs open up the lake every year by going to the tribal council. To see if the rice is ready to harvest, you have to pay really close attention. You can sometimes see changes in the rice over the course of one day. Take what happened in 2019, for example. It was early, early in September, and Peter knew that the rice on Rice Lake was getting close to ripening. And he talked to another wild rice chief, James Polar Sr. And they were like, we checked the rice in the morning and it's not ready for harvest, but should we check it this afternoon too? And they decided that would be a good idea. So at about 4 p.m., Peter and James headed out to the south part of the lake, which is the part that usually ripens first. And they get to the rice and they start bending it over and giving it a close look. He's, you know, bending it over and tapping it lightly. And, and 
and I'm pulling and and he grabs it and all of a sudden you just hear that rice just hit the belt just like rain we call it when the rice comes off real real right when it's real right we call it raining I look at it I physically look at the plant I bend it over the canoe and I look at it you can read the rice okay you can see you can read it by how it looks whether it's ripe or not and that's what we 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 teach our people to look at it and to see that it was amazing to us as rice chiefs to see it change so quickly they spent over half an hour out there and they harvested 25 pounds of rice which is a lot of rice and then they see the third rice chief steve at the landing but something's worrying them a storm is about to move in. I mean, we're supposed to get severe thunderstorms. Here's in the clouds are building. And here's the three rice chiefs standing there. What do we do? Okay. This is going to be ripe. This is ripe. This section of the lake is ripe. This rice is all going to fall off because it's going to rain hard. And we're sitting there. Well, well, what do we do? We're talking and we're looking at the rice and it's like, we got to start telling as many people as possible. So they get on their phones, they start calling people and telling them to bring down their canoes and telling those people to call other people and get down there. They harvested for 45 minutes before the storm finally came and they had four boats out there and they ended up getting 158 pounds of rice. Peter says that for less than an hour of harvest, that amount is pretty unheard of. They were feeling bad though, because it was so rewarding to be out there. And they were like, what are we gonna do with all of this rice? So they processed it and gave it to the community. And that marked the start of ricing season. Ricing season brings a certain spirit to the community. And our community changed. It instantly went into wild rice mode and um, the, the happiness that you saw in, in the faces of our people, um, knowing what, what was going to happen, what we were going to do, and the camaraderie that you, you feel and the, the teasing that you take um, while you're doing this is, is incredible. And you'll see it, you'll feel it. The hearts of the people just, they, they just explode with excitement. It's exhilarating to see this stuff. What does the ricing harvest look like? Yeah, so I've admittedly never been ricing. Peter invited us to come up, but there's, you know, a pandemic. Um, so we can't, we couldn't go this year. But basically people go out in canoes and one person's standing in the back and they're using a really long pole to push the boat along in these straight um, kind of stripes across the lake. And the person in the front of the canoe is using two sticks to bend the rice over the boat and knock the rice kernels down into the boat. Sarah Dance told us about her first time ricing. It was in 2018 and she had the privilege of going out with the Lac de Flambeau 
ricing chiefs and technicians. Sarah Dance had studied wild rice for six months at this point, and this was her first time going out, and she was kind of worried about doing it the wrong way, which I think I would be too. And then there's like spiders and bugs, and <laughs> when you're actually hitting it into the um, canoe and it's filling up, the canoe's filling up as you're rising. So it, it almost feels like water's kind of um, filling up the boat. You kind of almost have like a little bit of a panic because you see your feet disappear. And it's also these bugs that are crawling around. Yeah, Dance was a little bit scarred by the bugs, which is the most um, intense memory of her time going rising. We also talked to Nathan Podney, and he's from a suburb west of Milwaukee. He was hired as a hydrologist for the Sakagan Chippewa, and on his first day of the job, his boss brought him out to Rice Lake for the first time. First day I started here, my boss, uh, the environmental director, Tina Van Zyl, brought me over to the historic marker, and it talks about the battle that was fought, and uh, the amount of people that died protecting this lake. And um, it's, it's, it's tangible. The historical marker talks about the Battle of Mole Lake. In 1806, Sioux tribes tried to gain control of the Mole Lake rice beds. And there was a hand-to-hand -hand battle and over 500 people were killed. But the Sakagan Chippewa persevered and they retained their rice beds. I know that people have given their life for this lake, so why can't we give a little more time to help protect it or restore it? The Sakagan Chippewa are here because of the rice, in every way. Their origin story says that a thousand years ago, they moved west to where the food grows on water, and that was wild rice. And thinking back a few generations, there was wild rice on seven bodies of water on Sakagan Chippewa ancestral land. And now there's only one, which is Rice Lake. After the break, fighting for the rice. Wisconsin Sea Grant and the Center for Great Lakes Literacy are proud to bring you the Aquatic Invaders Attack Pack, a grab-and-go teaching tool to educate students and the public about aquatic invasive species. Sydney, what's your favorite thing in the attack pack? I love all of the specimens. There's a preserved sea lamp right inside each pack, which I think is amazing. And the packs also include little resin blocks with a lot of different specimens like the frosty crayfish and round goby and a lot more. And it was my first time seeing some of these species in real life, which is kind of cool. How about you? I love the cutouts of Big Head and Silver Carp and their life size. So I can imagine a kid standing next to one and getting a sense of how big that these fish can get. Each pack includes these items and more, along with a guide with curricula and activities. If you're a Wisconsin resident, you can borrow an attack pack and have it delivered to your local library free of charge. Visit the educational resources tab at seagrant.wisc.edu for more information. During nights when it looks like rain, Nathan, the hydrologist that we talked to earlier, is always on his phone anxiously checking the weather. Is that because he's worried about the rain knocking down the rice that's ripe? Yeah, but there's more to it than that. So this last month, uh, July, 
up here we got over 10 inches of rain. And that's the middle of summer. We're supposed to be at like base flow conditions, low water. That, that's ridiculous. We've been having a lot of rain around here. And climate change will only make things wetter. Like predictions show wetter winters and springs in the Great Lakes region in the next only 80 years. How does, how does that change impact the wild rice? Yeah, so let's talk about how the wild rice prefers to live first. Wild rice has this natural cycle. When you get right down to it, we're all a part of nature. And we know that there are going to be good years, there are going to be bad years in wild rice, okay? And, and we accept that. You may not particularly like that, but um, the creator gives us what he gives us for a reason. Some years, Rice Lake has no rice. It's just really bare. But there are some years where the lake is just full. And there's this old adage where out of every five years, you'll have one boom year, one bust year, and a few middle years. So if you imagine Rice Lake, it's got three streams going in and one going out. There's this flow created by that flow through the lake. And this flow is really necessary for the rice. Rice also needs water with certain shallow depth, so it can only grow in several inches to several feet deep. And so all this rain that Nathan's talking about can raise lake levels and drown the rice. Nathan also talked a lot about culverts. Culverts? Like the, the ditches by the side of the road? Yeah, exactly. Those pipes that kind of go through under the roads. So we, we build roads through wetlands and then we put culverts in to let the water flow. But oftentimes these culverts are actually too small especially with a lot more common large rainstorms. And this is, isn't the only way that climate change is affecting wild rice. So with increased humidity, you can get this disease called brown spot disease, which is a fungus that will kill wild rice. And you also have warmer temperatures, which are kind of pushing the rice's natural range north. Climate change could also make areas more habitable to new species that could survive and compete with the rice. What species impact wild rice? Are we getting to the AIS part? <laughs> exactly, yeah. If you're wondering when we were going to talk about invasive species, this is kind of the time. And of course, there are different ways to describe invasive species. Tribal entities like the Great Lakes, Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission, they use the term non-local beings. And we here at Introduced are partial to the term introduced, but the word invasive is still mainstream. So I needed more time to talk to Peter. So I sat down with him again, and this time he was sitting in a screen tent in his backyard. Can you hear them dogs barking in the background? I can hear them vaguely, yeah, but they're okay. not too loud. <laughs> um, my uncle lives behind me and he had 17 puppies this year. Oh my gosh. Wow. And they've got a handful of them left. I think five. 
mm-hmm. and they must be it must be dinner time. <laughs> yeah. And back to um, invasive species. The other thing that we've got is yellow lily pads. Okay, and that has been something that historically that um, my father tells me stories of of the chief getting the people out there to pull the the lily bed roots because those roots can get six inches in diameter and be 20, 30 feet long, you know, if not bigger. So they've had lily pads for a long time. And the lily pads are like 15 inches across and they grow quickly and shade out the baby rice when they really need sun. And they're not new to the lake, obviously. From the stories Peter's father told him, he knows that the tribe has been removing problematic lily pads for 120 years at least. Lily pads are important to the lake, okay? They, the creator put them there for a reason, okay? And he put all these plants together to benefit themselves, okay, to benefit each other. But we know that too much of a good thing is too much of a good thing. So, but you know what? Wild rice has been around for tens of thousands of years, okay? And it's still here, all right? And so nature takes care of it. It's man who messes things up, you know? Really, it is. Lily pads aren't the only species capable of overwhelming wild rice on Race Lake. There's another plant. This one is tall and it has these brown cylindrical seed heads at the top that become really fluffy when they're giving out their seeds. We're talking about cattails or hybrid cattails, which are a hybrid between native and invasive cattails. And um, even the experts can hardly tell them apart at this point. It was after a drought that the Sakagan Chippewa rice chiefs were noticing that Rice Lake was slowly getting cattails and losing wild rice. Biologist Mike Pruel was able to confirm this. The cattail patches were changing the flow of water through the lake, and the rice needs that flow. So to fix this, they got a swamp devil that is this big machine that goes up and chops up the cattails and then they've used them for mulch. I've always been taught we're here because of the rice, okay? And rice has sustained our people, and that's why we're here. So it's easy for me to say, you know, anything that threatens wild rice is a threat to our people and to our culture. And um, we've got to... We've got to fight that. You know, we got to do those things. There's other aquatic invasive species that could affect wild rice. We just aren't quite sure of the effect yet. Like we talked about, maybe snails could affect, invasive snails could affect wild rice in a negative way, or silver or big head carp. But right now we're just talking about the species that 
are impacting Rice Lake. Starting with European colonization, non-native people have been moving and settling on lakes in what we now know as Northern Minnesota and Northern Wisconsin and, and Michigan. Nathan talked about how the way you envision a lake is often different than what a lake would naturally look like. Like when you envision a classic Wisconsin lake, is there an image that comes to mind for you? Yeah, um, it's really big. It's clear and blue and deep. Yeah, probably something like that. Lots of room to boat. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people have fond memories of water skiing or boating on this really wide, clear lake. And Nathan said this vision is kind of like you're envisioning a giant swimming pool. On a good year for wild rice, though, the wild rice grows in a way that makes the whole lake almost look like a field, like you can hardly see the water or tell, tell it's a lake almost. It's definitely not matching up with this swimming pool vision of a lake. And boating can really disrupt wild rice. Some settlers think of wild rice as a nuisance plant, unfortunately. As people moved up here and they wanted their lake frontage and they looked at wild rice as a weed, okay? And um, raised the water up. They found that they could raise the water up and kill the wild rice off, so that's what they did. Um, now they're understanding how important wild rice is to the lake, okay? And that it's an indicator species and indicates if you can, if rice can grow in your lake, you've got good water with good flow, you know, so the nutrient level is there. Are they trying to restore rice to any of these lakes? Yeah, they are. They're tr they've been trying to restore rice in ancient traditional rice beds near the reservation. But it's not always an easy process. At the beginning, they were fighting with a lot of lake associations, which have a lot of control over the lakes. Lake associations are the groups of homeowners who have property in the lake, right? And have a lot of control over how they want to manage the lake. Yeah. The lake associations were more in favor of this clear lake for boating and water skiing than having a, a wild rice lake. But now it's turning around in some places and some lake associations are starting to want to plant wild rice. Peter said the tribe has been working with a lake association on a nearby lake to restore wild rice. They, they have this agreement where, where the tribe will plant rice in an area that's currently unusable to recreation because there's really thick lily pads. So people can't boat anyways. And at the risk of sounding too negative, I'm gonna talk about one more invasive. This invasive is huge and greedy, but it isn't biological. Here's Peter. I was 18 years old and um... The only job there was, was being the secretary. And that was, it was funded through the Department of Energy. That's when the United States government was looking for areas to um, develop a, a low level nuclear waste repository site in Wisconsin. 
Have you heard about this nuclear waste repository, Sydney? I did not hear about the nuclear waste repository. So in the 70s and 80s, the U.S. was looking for a place to store all of their nuclear waste in like one location. And so the Department of Energy was ranking places that we might want to do this. And they ranked Wisconsin's Wolf River area as one of its top three options. And I guess Wolf River has this batholith, which is in the in northeastern Wisconsin. And it's this huge section of underground granite. And so they, they look for kind of just giant underground granite or rocks where they can dig into to to house this nuclear waste. And in Wisconsin, we also don't have earthquakes and we don't have, you know, other natural disasters that um, made us a good site, I guess. But if the radioactive materials ended up coming to Wisconsin and leaking, that water could flow into the Wolf River, into the Fox River, into Lake Winnebago and, and Lake Michigan. And that water could affect Rice Lake as well. And if that's not enough, Peter also mentioned that around the same time in the 70s, there was this mine that was proposed for a site in Crandon, which is like really close to the Mole Lake Reservation. Crandon, the town, sits on this deposit of hard rock that has valuable metals in it, like copper and zinc. And the mine was going to be a metallic sulfide mine. In order to get valuable metals out of the land, they break apart rock called sulfide ores, which releases toxic wastewater. This mine was proposed to go directly adjacent to the Mole Lake Reservation. And it was clear to the tribal nation that toxic runoff had the potential to cause harm to wildlife and aquatic species and especially Rice Lake. Yeah, which brings us back to the beginning, right? With Sarah, with Dance, who was talking about like specifically how sulfide mining is so harmful to rice. Yeah, exactly. Dance, she grows wild rice in buckets as a way to study how sulfide is processed by the rice and it is not good. Sulfide is pretty toxic to the plant. Like, if wild rice is exposed to this, populations will die within five years of exposure. So what happened with the Crandon mine? So Peter and other tribal advocates, they fought for 30 years to keep this mine off of their adjacent land. This little community, the Sakagan Chippewa community, and neighboring Forest County Potawatomi, they kept protesting and forming coalitions and challenging legislators about this mine. And finally, they defeated the world's largest multinational mining conglomerate. And after 30 years, the Mole Lake Sakagan Chippewa and Forest County Potawatomi were able to purchase the 5,000 acre mine site. I just imagine a young 18-year-old Peter who's faced with incoming threats to his people and land from all directions. I've learned to fight corporations and, and federal government 
And so I bring that that experience to fighting for the rice um, because that's really truly what we are in right now is a fight for the rice. Now it's my responsibility to make sure it's there for my children, for for my children's children, for the seven generations. You know, those people, those people went through that whole European settlement era and, and they knew enough to fight for the rice and the animals and the environment and tied that up in treaty rights and, and retaining that that right to to harvest. Without them doing that, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. So it's up to me to make sure that I continue that fight, to continue to learn as much as I possibly can scientifically. But at the same time, you know, you gotta put your tobacco up. This is our faith. The creator gave us this is more than just a plant. It, it, it's who we are, it's why we're here. We'll be right back. Water research mysteries, teachers connecting kids with the Great Lake in their communities, erosion and dangerous currents. These are just some of the stories offered by Wisconsin Sea Grant and the University of Wisconsin Water Resources Institute. A monthly podcast series, Wisconsin Water News, highlights stories previously available only in print from these programs. Series narrator and science communicator Marie Zwickoff brings the stories alive by featuring in-person and phone interviews with the people behind the news. Listen and subscribe to Wisconsin Water News on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or at Sea grant.wisc.edu. Wild rice has this natural cycle. It has boom years, it has bust years, it has middle years. And there's a really chemical-y background to this. I'll let a scientist explain. Here's Sarah Dance, and um, there will be a pop quiz, so take notes on this. <laughs> It has like this cyclical relationship with the environment. And that has a lot to do with the nutrient concentrations and whether nitrogen is being mineralized or immobilized and this buildup of organic matter. Like that's the very scientific background to it. Did you catch all that? You understand? <laughs> I think so. So the way I've been thinking about it is kind of similar to garden compost. So you have to wait a little bit for the compost to decay before you can put it on your plants. And the same thing is happening with wild rice on the bottom of the lake, because the wild rice plants die in the fall and that matter has nutrients for the next generation, next year. But it isn't fully decayed by next year. Sometimes it takes up to two years for that to decay. And so the nutrients, the nitrogen, isn't available for that next generation until they're built back up over the next few years. So therefore you have those boom years and bust years and middling years. That's the very scientific background to it. But out when we're talking to communities, um, it, it's much more about the stories of, you know, wild rice having this ab amazing resiliency. You know, there's also evidence or anecdotal evidence, traditional ecological knowledge that 
these plants are extremely resilient and they have the ability to make a comeback if we can do the right restoration work. So we've heard a lot from Peter about what it feels like when the Mole Lake Sakagan community has a really good racing year. But I also asked Peter about what it feels like when there's one of those bust years when it's really thin out on the lake. So it's like you're seeing another side of, of the lake, okay? And there's beauty in that. And you, you pray for that lake and, and you said, okay, what am I going to do? Well, I can't pick any rice here on the lake. I might as well go fishing, you know, something else for my people. Or duck hunting, okay? I've still got to provide for my people. You know, it may not be rice, but I'm bringing them something. I'm providing for that day. And that's how we view it today. We don't like, we don't want it not to have rice, but we understand that does that. That's nature taking care of itself. It's more easy to protect wild rice really than it is to restore it. And the Mole Lake Sakagan Chippewa are doing restoration on their historic ricing lakes. But, you know, for that, you need funding. You need community buy-in from people who aren't tribal members, like, like lake associations and natural resource managers. And researchers can help as well if they're as thoughtful and intentional as Sarah Dance. You know, as a researcher, I've really fallen in love with the idea of having a relationship with the thing that I'm studying. I think researchers that don't have as much of a relationship with Menomen definitely have a negative outlook. And I think that that has, you know, merit. There, there is a grim outlook for climate change. Um, I mean, the, the recent coronavirus, a lot of um, companies and legislators have seized on the opportunity to move forward on like mining um, pipelines, things like that. So, but you know, I, I believe in the stories. I believe based on the relationship I've had with Monoman that it's resilient and that we have to uphold our part of whether that's the, you know, our part on the side of our treaties or, you know, our personal relationship with Monoman to have a positive outlook and keep things moving forward for restoration and protection. Like, I think we owe it to ourselves, we owe it to Monoman, we owe it to our communities to not just give up on this or put it aside or say that it's too difficult. It is difficult, but it's not too difficult. So we need to ensure that the future for Monoman is bright. And I absolutely believe that we can do that. And what gives our wild rice chief, Peter, hope? You know, you gotta have faith. You put your backer down every day and you pray for it. And and at some point you just got, it's, it's faith, you know? It's not hope, it's faith. You got faith that that's, the creator is taking care of it. Introduced is produced and hosted by Bonnie Wilson and Sydney Wydell. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with a friend. 
You can find Wisconsin Sea Grant on Twitter at Grant and on Facebook at University of Wisconsin Sea Grant and Water Resources Institute. We would love to hear from you. Please send in your questions and comments to bonnie at aqua.wisc.edu. You can listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.